Let me take you back to the summer of 1992. I was 18 years old at the time, just graduated high school, and I was off to college. I was leaving my home in Syracuse, New York to go west about two hours to a, a school named SUNY uh, Brockport, right outside of Rochester. And I'm moving out of the home, and I'm now 18 years old, and at least according to the law, I'm an adult, no longer a kid. And, and I was feeling the, the, the thrill of all of that, to be out from uh, underneath uh, these oppressors that I would call my parents, you know, always telling you what to do, when to get up in the morning, how to spend your day, who you could hang with, who you couldn't, what time you could come home, all of that. And the attitude of my heart was, no longer. I'm a man now, right? I make my own decisions. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I make my own decisions as a man now that I'm 18. And I needed to, to do something to kind of commemorate this new sense of uh, power that I, that I was feeling. This, uh, you know, uh, newfound freedom to celebrate my independence. So like baptism, I needed an outward expression of the inward reality that was happening within me at the time. So I decided... I would get a tattoo. Now, when people get tattoos, typically what they do is they think about their life, what's important to them, what brings about great sig significance in their lives, something they value, what, you know, something kind of identifies them. Well, as an 18-year-old lost non-Christian, there were two things really that marked my life at that time, and they were music and marijuana. Music and marijuana. My, my childhood in the 70s and 80s coincided with a particular uh, genre of music that was coming of age. We, we grew up together, and that is rap music. And I'm still a fan, but back then I was really a fan. And, you know, all the, the groups that existed back then, you know the names. Well, let me give you a name that you may not know. They were popular, but we're going back some years. And there was a group called Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill uh, was, uh, for a short amount of time in my life, uh, the, the albums I was listening to were theirs. And to help you get an understanding, because I think many in the room are like, I don't know who they are, I'm not familiar with them, Mike. Let me give you a sampling of some of the names of their songs, which will, uh, I think, clear things up rather quickly. <laughs> Ultraviolet Dreams. Light Another, Stoned is the Way of the Walk, Something for the Blunted, I Want to Get High, Legalize It, and Hits from the Bong. <laughs> I think you get the idea. So my brilliant idea at this time was I'm going to take the artwork from their first album, which consists of a, a skull with a, an arrow going right through the eye sockets, and a big marijuana leaf right in the forehead. Uh, I'll get this image tattooed on my body right here on my chest. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, my last name is Bongo. <laughs> so right above the skull in the marijuana leaf in the forehead, I'll put my last name minus the second O. There it is, B-O-N-G, right over my heart. How symbolic. Now, I'm not here to glorify in it, and we can chuckle a little bit. I'm not really laughing because, you know, it's folly. And sometimes you got to laugh at folly. So I get it, and I understand some laughter. But you know what? Since that time, for 30-some years, I've been trying to redeem it. I will talk about it on occasion, but I don't show it. I don't show it. I don't think anyone here at Living Water has ever seen it. Well, that's not true. There's three people, Tara Bongo, Anthony Bongo, and Nathan Bongo, (laughs) apart from those three. But I don't like pool parties. It's awkward, requires some explaining. But I will talk about it because it's part of my testimony. It's part of my story. Right? And this thing that I look at in the mirror every single day reminds me of what Jesus has rescued me from. Amen. Amen. My lost spiritual condition at that time. Yet while I was making stupid decisions, Jesus Christ died for me. That is the redemption that I now have. That Just as an idiot kid, not knowing anything about life, thinking because I've turned 18 and the government says you can do certain things now, uh, the attitude of my heart was a stubborn unwillingness to submit to authority. That's really what it comes down to. This attitude of, I don't answer to anyone. No one gets to tell me what to do anymore. I'm an adult. And those Words, that mentality, that mindset stands in direct, stark contrast to to Jesus' words we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 8. You could say, I had set my mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. One man in particular, Mike Bongo. Mark 8, let's take a look at it. If you have a Bible, please turn there. We're going to really... Focus on verse 34, but we need to grab the verses before it as well. If you would, please stand as we're going to hear from the Lord. We're going to look at Mark 8, 31 through 34. And really, to get a full understanding of verse 34, you'd need the verses afterwards, but we only have so much time, so we're, we're just going to do 31 through 34 here today. Word of God says this, and he, that's Jesus, he began to teach them, that would be his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The word of God. You may be seated. So what's the setting here? We're just jumping right into Mark chapter 8. What's going on? What's the occasion? Well, Jesus has been with his disciples a number of years at this point, and he's traveling with them. They're, they're making their way through the villages of Caesarea Philippi on their way to Jerusalem. And as the text says, Jesus began to teach his disciples. He's telling them what's coming regarding his death and resurrection And as it states in verse 31, the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, that's his favorite designation of himself, he says, the Son of Man must, take note of that. If you're a Bible highlighter or underliner person, you might want to do that with the word must. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed but after three days, rise again. But Peter's not trying to hear that. Peter has this great idea that he's going to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. He's like, Jesus, we need to have a little talk. All right, let, let me set you straight. And, and Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew does with what, what Peter says. He says, far be it from you, Lord, Uh, this shall never happen to you. You got to love bold, impetuous Peter here, right? And you might think, well, that's kind of an understandable thing to say. Like, I get why why he would say that. Like, Jesus is his friend. He loves Jesus. He doesn't want to see anything bad happen to him. So it might seem like a good thing to say, but Jesus comes hard against him, and he rebukes Peter, quite strongly, I might add, in verse 33, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In effect, what Jesus is saying is, This isn't about you, Peter, and what you want. See, Peter's words were representative of a mindset that many of the Jews had at that time. This is on the heels of Jesus asking the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter has that great confession, right? You're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Wonderful things that, 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 that came out of Peter's mouth, right? But then there's this. But there's a mindset that was pervasive at the time, and Peter is representative of that. Many of the Jews saw the Messiah as like this military figure who was going to come along, uh, rescue them from the oppression of the, the Romans, get them out from underneath the thumb of the Romans, and establish Israel as a, a, you know, this great nation, a ruling dominant nation. And that was, that was earthly thinking, though, because they're thinking about themselves. See, they wanted a conquering king, but what they got was a suffering servant. See, Peter didn't understand that you don't get the kingdom without the cross. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, so aptly put it, he said this, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. 
Now, Jesus is going to set everybody straight. If you notice in the text there, he turns to the disciples, right? He sees like, hey, this, this, is, not, this is probably not just Peter thinking this. Let me, let me address the disciples, but then he gathers the crowd. He's, he's addressing everybody in that radius there. And Jesus is going to say, you want to be with me? You want to be on mission with me? You want to be, uh, you know, go where I'm going and be down with me and join me and what I'm all about? You want to be a, quote, a genuine follower? Let me tell you about it. Verse 34. This is what it takes right here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's where we're going to camp, right there in verse 34, and we're going to break it down. Let's start with the if anyone. If anyone. You know what the anyone means in the Greek? It means anyone. <laughs> anyone. Anyone and everyone. There's no, nothing hidden here. No tricks, right? He, he's, he's saying anyone. He's not talking to a select group. You know, like, you know, the elite Christians, like pastors and elders and leaders in the church. You know, special Christians who take their relationship with Jesus seriously. No, he's not talking about a select group. He means everyone. So he's not referring to those, you know, those crazy born-again Christians, right? We heard about them last week in uh, Elder Jim Benna's testimony. And that really connected with me. Uh, that... If you, if you didn't see the testimony, it was a video testimony. Elder Jim, he's in Florida right now, probably watching us on the live stream. If you didn't watch, if you didn't watch that, you need to go back and check that out. I, you'll do two things when you watch that. One, you will praise God for his redeeming mercy in the life of Jim Benna, but, and also in your life. But then the second thing you'll do is you'll laugh, because... Jim is low-key hilarious, all right? I, I like, he's so funny. But these, you know, this notion of born-again Christians, right? There's, there's not two categories, right? That there's the born-again Christian and the regular Christian. Like, you know this, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's foreign to the scriptures, right? Every Christian is a born-again Christian. It's kind of redundant to say born-again Christian, Born again equals Christian. It'd be like saying you're a suffering Buffalo Bills fan. <laughs> we know you're suffering. You don't have to tell us. You're a Buffalo Bills fan. And I, and I know I have family in Buffalo. My, uh, my cousin Donnie's out there. That, that's my cousin Donnie right there. No. But... And it says genuine follower. That is a genuine follower. That's what they look like, <laughs> Buffalo Bills fans. Like every January and February, that's them right there. <laughs> we know you're suffering because you're a Bills fan. We know you're born again because you're a Christian. It's the same thing. See, there aren't really committed Christians and then the not-so-committed Christians. The Bible knows nothing of that. You know, the, the really committed Christian, they, they read their Bible. 
They pray. They, they serve and witness and share their faith, right? You know what we call those Christians? Regular Christians. That's who they are. You cannot separate salvation from obedience. You can't slice up Jesus and have him as your Savior, but not as your Lord. You can't do that. My, my beloved mother, uh, talk about my mom here for a second. I have her permission, by the way. Uh, God love my mother. She, um, she calls me one of them born-agains. That's what I am. She tells her friends, you know, my, my son Michael, he's um, down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, works at a church, does this sort of thing right here. He, he, he takes that whole Jesus thing really serious. That's what she tells her friends. And I say, Ma, listen, Jesus said you have to be born again to go to heaven, right? So if you say you're going to heaven, right, that you're, you're a, a true Christian on their way to heaven, as you say, guess what you are? You're one of them born-again Christians. Drives her crazy, right? But as I witness to her, she'll tell me continually, Michael, don't worry about me. I'm fine. We're both going to heaven. And this is what she thinks. She actually said, I'm just going to live in like the ritzy part of heaven <laughs> in a nice place. And she's going to live on the, quote, south side. That is a direct quote from my beloved mother. Mom, there's no projects in heaven. <laughs> heaven doesn't have a housing crisis. There's no condemned, dilapidated buildings that you're going to occupy in heaven. There's no wrong side of the tracks in heaven. I mean, it'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic to think that way. But Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Full stop. We got to talk about this. Denying self is not our strong suit. It's not. And, and it's as if Sheila had read my sermon before her prayer. We were talking about this earlier, Heidi and I. There's things that the Lord does in these services that just... You may not catch, but I do. Like she's saying things in that prayer that are going to come out of my mouth just minutes later. It's a beautiful thing. We, we struggle here denying self. Can we be honest? I know I struggle. We're, we're good on satisfying self, but not so much denying self. And we're, we're awash in a culture of self-love, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-satisfaction. We love to celebrate self. And as evidence, I would just point you to the proliferation of award shows over the last few decades. You know, it used to just be like the Oscars, you know. You got the Oscars, the Grammys, you got the Emmys, the Tonys, the Golden Globes, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the People's Choice Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards, the ESPY Awards, the MTV Video Music Awards, the MTV Movie Awards, Video Game Awards, Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, BET Awards, and Country Music Television Awards. It is amazing that we have not dislocated our shoulder with the amount of patting on the back we do of our own selves, 
and the frequency in which we do it. We love ourselves. We do. We must own that. And if you're going to talk about coming to Christ, one of, if not the biggest obstacle, is self. Self just gets in the way. Self is central. It's the center of it all. Remember Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes, right? Had a signature song, and it was called My Way. Did you ever really listen to the lyrics? I have them on the screen. Let's follow along here with these lyrics to this song. And now the end is here, and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. The record shows I took all the blows and did it my way. <laughs> Interesting facts about that song. Frank Sinatra didn't write it. It was written by a guy named Paul Anka. And, and Frank Sinatra, before he passed, he told his daughter that he grew to hate that song. He hated that song. He said it was both self-serving and self-indulgent. And I, I'm glad he said it. I'm glad he said it. I think that's, that's, that was a good thing. You know, that song's mindset, that mentality, that song right there is on Hell's Playlist. The torment of people knowing, I'm going to do it my way. Submit to Jesus? No. Me. That... You're going to live with that for all eternity if you reject God's one and only appointed Savior. You don't want to get on his program. You don't want to join with him. You insist on doing things my way. I don't listen to anyone. I don't, I don't listen to my parents. I don't submit to any authority except my own. I'm autonomous. I do what I want when I want. I'm certainly not going to follow God's plan for my life. I'm going to do it my way. But how many of us, before we start, you know, looking down upon lost people who are just lost, I was there, weren't you there? You were there, right? But how many of us, maybe we come in here on Sunday and we sing the song, Jesus at the center of it all, right? But then we leave this place and for the rest of the week, the soundtrack of our lives is I am the center of it all. That may be more true than we care to realize. Jesus, in this text, he's putting his finger right on the issue that we need to most deal with, and it's ourselves. And he says, deny yourself. What does he mean by deny? This isn't giving up chocolate for Lent. This isn't, I'll give up some bad habit that I shouldn't even be doing in the first place. That's not what he has in view. This isn't I'll pass on that donut because it goes straight to my hips. That, that, that's not what he's getting at here. He's, he's got something greater in mind. See, the word deny here is the same word used in Peter's denial. It's that strong. It's a very strong word that means to repudiate 
renounce, or disown. It's not denying yourself some little pleasure in life. And at the other end of the spectrum, it's not some sort of reclusive asceticism. It's that neither of those. It's a complete abandonment to our own selfish ways and the things we want out of life, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, our goals. It's, it's about abandoning our own self-interest and dying to self and instead embracing what God has for us. It's a total giving up of your own desires in favor of his. It's a relinquishing control of your life to him. You don't become full of yourself. You come to the end of yourself. When you get there, then you're ready for Jesus. You're ready to truly follow him. This is why a lot of people come to faith in Jesus when they're at rock bottom. Sometimes you got to hit rock bottom where you're completely destitute and you have nothing else. Some people have to get to that point. But you could be like this illustration here with the Apostle Paul. Look at the Apostle Paul. He had a lot going for him. He did before he met Jesus. Philippians 3 kind of articulates this. Verses 7 and 8, he says this. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. Greek word there is skubalon. Some of you know this. It's it's. It's almost a very dirty word. It means excrement. Paul is searching for the most disgusting word he can think of, and he utilizes it here. See, in a certain sense, Paul, he, he's, he's a dead man. He, he says, I'm dead. I died to all my desires, all of them. I've given up everything, including, and probably most notably, his own self-righteousness that he had because of his, his religiosity, right? And he says, I die daily, right? Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously said, you want to come to Jesus? Here's the calling to come to Jesus. Come and die. That's it. That's it. And now how should we live? Galatians 2.20. Because I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the type of denial Jesus has in mind. It's a high calling, very high. But he's not done yet. He says, take up your cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? It's not merely enduring some rather unfavorable situation, some hardship that you have to endure. You know, your mother-in-law is not your cross to bear, right? That's not what he means here. Your boss isn't your cross. Your car and its check engine light that keeps going off at the most inopportune times isn't your cross. Your chronic bouts of indigestion 
It's not the cross that you have to bear or to carry. Again, Jesus has something greater in mind here. So you got to remember, he said this before he went to the cross, obviously. And if he used this, it must have had some meaning to the hearers there. And it did. They're well familiar with what he's talking about. And he's talking about crucifixion. History tells us some 30,000 people were crucified under the, the Roman rule. And they all knew what he meant by this. We, however, maybe not as much, right? Some 2,000 years later, you know, we, we view the cross, it's, it's beautiful, right? We, we love the cross. It's, it's, uh, it's around many people's necks. It's on the cover of, of Bibles, you know, the... The, it's on the wall. We got one right over there on the wall, right? This is the sign or the symbol of the Christian faith. And it and it's it's represents to us God's love for us that he would send his one and only son to be our all-sufficient savior. We love the cross, right? It's beautiful. But the crowd here in Mark 8 is going to take it a different way. They're going to hear that and think, instrument of execution, that's what they're thinking. And if Jesus was, you know, killed via electric chair, we'd have an electric chair on the wall. Imagine that. Gives a whole different view of the cross. See, to take up one's cross means you're a dead man. You're done. It's over for you. Your days aren't numbered. Your hours are numbered. You will soon be dead. And it was... It was, the crucifixion was specifically designed for a certain type of criminal, those who rebelled against authority. It was the Romans' way of saying, you come up against us, oh, we're going to teach you a lesson, and we're going to make a spectacle of you. It was their way of saying, look, see that person carrying that cross? They defied us, right? That man or woman, they crucified women too, they defied us, don't you dare defy us, or that's what will happen to you. That's, what, that's what's meant by it all. One Bible teacher put it well, the condemned person was now so completely conquered that his last act in life would be to carry the instrument of his demise to the place of his death. It was a show of complete and utter submission. And that's what Jesus has in mind. That's what he means. Complete and utter submission. And should this be a one-time event? And they're like, all right, well, I submitted to Jesus. I gave them all and, you know, done. I, I kind of got that over with. Now I'll go about living the rest of my days for myself. And some people kind of view that. Why, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart as a little kid, you know, and... Uh, I got my, what are they, fire insurance, right? I'm not going to hell. And now you just you feel like you got some get out of hell free card and then you can live any old way you want. That's not what Jesus is saying here. This is the calling that he would have for his would-be followers. Complete submission. So you better count the cost. So just as a side, when you're sharing the gospel with people, we need to bring this in. And talk about what it means to truly follow Jesus and the trials and the difficulties and the challenges that are ahead for the true Christian. 
Denying self, killing sin, resisting temptation. This, this is the Christian life. And yeah, there's joy and there's peace and all of that. It's, it's, a, mixed, it's a mixed bag, but Jesus is big on counting the cost, right? And this is a continual thing, like I said. We know it for two reasons. One is the grammatical structure. It's just the way it's laid out in the original language. This is a continual thing. Jesus isn't saying do it once and then, then you've done it and that's it. No, it's continual also because Luke gives us a single word in his gospel, and the word is daily, daily. Mark doesn't include it, neither does Matthew. So I want to show you on the screen here uh, something that I found helpful. Sorry for like how rudimentary this is, but that's me taking a picture of a book that I have, and it's called, I brought it up here, it's called the, the Harmony of the Gospels, okay, by Thomas and Gundry is my favorite. There's a bunch out there. What this book does is it gives you, uh, really with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it puts them side by side. I, I hope you can see it. The first column is Matthew, the second is Mark, and the third is Luke. And what's highlighted there is the uh, content that's unique to that specific Gospel, right? And you can see in the far right there, Luke includes the word daily. And you'll notice the gap there. Luke does not include the whole Mark rebuking. Um, not Mark rebuking, Peter. Peter's rebuking. He just, for whatever reason, chose to not tell. So it just skips that over. But you can see side by side these single accounts, and you get a really fully orbed look at it. So, you know, I say that just because a follow-up from last weekend. Evan said what? Not just be devoted to reading God's Word, but studying it. You might want to add that book, The Harmony of the Gospels, into your library. So it would be a nice addition, really help you understand Scripture. It's uh, $26 on Amazon. I did a little shopping for you. All right? Hardcover, too. If Jesus is big on counting the cost, uh, telling people that, I'm going to be big on it. So count the cost, 26 bucks. It's good, though. It's a good work. It's a good work. But, you know, I, sometimes we just got to get real practical and just give you something that we find helpful. I want to share that with you. So, but this is what Jesus is saying right here. Verse 34, it's for you and me. You want to come after Christ? This is what it takes. This is what it looks like. And I will say this, there's grace for when we fall short. Obviously, I hope you know that, right? But that grace that is given freely given to the devout follower who just stumbles and falls and doesn't live up to this, right? That grace is, that's given doesn't make the demand any less demanding, okay? I hope you, you get that. So let me, uh, let me conclude here. Uh, I was trying to figure out a good way to, to kind of tie this all together. I don't know if this is gonna hit or not, but I thought what I would do is uh, give kind of real practical and just, what does this look like, right? Because this is all just kind of abstract. What, what does it look like? So I thought I would tie the first four um, sermons from our uh, series here on Genuine Follower. These are qualities of a disciple of Jesus. Uh, let me read them to you. The, the growing allegiance to Jesus, a discernible spirit of repentance, an unwavering devotion to and study of God's word. And then a denial of self is the authority and focus of our lives. Let me present to you a, a hypothetical. Just made this up. Maybe this will resonate with you. Uh, maybe not. But I think even if it doesn't, you can pull like some of the principles and some of the content out and just 
adapt it to your own personal situation in life. For many people, the reason so many people laughed about the Buffalo Bills thing is we got a lot of football fans in America, okay? It's a new national pastime. Today's a big day, right? You call it championship weekend. If you're not a football fan, there, there, there's two games going on, and the winner of each game, uh, they'll play two weeks from now in the Super Bowl, okay? So it's a big day for football fans, and if you are going to watch both games, maybe a little pregame stuff, a little postgame stuff, you could easily spend eight hours in front of the television. Very easy, very easy. Some, you can go a lot longer than that. Imagine a, a scenario, right? Imagine a scenario, for our purposes here, let's say there's a, there's a guy, he's married, and he has a kid. He's a big football fan. So he's looking forward to today, later this afternoon, especially on a rainy day, right? What are you going to do? Sit and watch football, right? So he's watching the game, and his wife and his kid, they join him for a little while because they, they like football, but not nearly as much as this guy. And they get some pizza, and they're eating a the pizza, and the guy's sitting there, and he's thinking, I could go for one more slice. So he goes into the kitchen, and he sees there in the pizza box two slices left. And quite naturally, he says, well, this is perfect. I'll eat one. I didn't finish the last one. You know, I'll leave one there, and my wife and kid can battle it out for who gets the last slice. But this day, something's different, because he's been reading his Bible. He's, he has an unwavering devotion to the Word of God, and he starts thinking. He says, wait a minute. What did I read in my Bible recently? Was that in Philippians? Did, did it say there something about, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others? And this pops into his head. And because of that, he doesn't just hear the Word, right? He obeys it. He says, I don't need to eat that last slice. And he walks away, leaving both of them in the pizza box. One for his wife and one for his kid. Now, you might say, small decision, right? Granted, I get you, all right? But in God's economy, is there really anything such as a small decision? That stuff matters to God. You know, those who be faithful in little will be faithful in much. If you're totally self-consumed, like my guy in my story here, start with leaving some pizza in the box. You know what I'm saying? You got to start somewhere, right? So he goes back to the game, right? He goes back to the game. He's watching it. And his wife and his kid, they, they kind of peel off. They go do something else because they're, you, know, you can only take so much football and they're not, you know, that hardcore. He's watching the game and conviction sets in. And he thinks to himself, I may be, you know, just neglecting my family with all this football that I'm watching. And a discernible spirit of repentance is present within him. And he acts upon it. He grabs the remote. He turns off the TV. He gets up out of the recliner and he goes to find his wife. He finds her. He says, honey, I'm sorry. I've been watching too much football. I, we've hardly spent any time together on Sundays because I'm in front of that television watching all these playoff games. And you know, you want to do something, huh? You want to watch a movie? Can I rub your back or whatever? And, you know, he's coming to his wife quite humbly. And his wife, she says to him, well, I appreciate that. Uh, that's okay. You know, I'm glad you said that, but I'm really just into this good book here, and it's okay. 
But she says, I will be glad, though, when football season is over so that we can spend more time together. And she says, and, you know, maybe you can finish that home project that you began last April. And, you know, maybe we can get it done before we hit the one-year anniversary, you know. And they share a little laugh over that. He kisses his wife, and he goes to find his son. He goes in the kid's room. says, hey, buddy, want to play a game? And his son's like, no, thanks, Dad. I'm, I'm about to level up on this game here. It's all good. Maybe we can do something tomorrow, though. And so the dad, he, he kisses his boy on the forehead, and he goes back to the living room. He says, well, I could turn the game back on. But once again, conviction comes in because he's keenly aware of his lack of allegiance to Jesus, the things of God, and his family. And in that moment, he has this utter compulsion to pray. And he prays and he confesses all this to God. He pours out his heart to God. And when he's done, he finishes the prayer. He has this overwhelming sense of peace. Why? Because there's grace and there's mercy available to him because of Jesus. And this is just, this just gives him peace of mind. He has a gratefulness to God. And he says, I don't need to watch that game. I'm going to go up and go to bed, get a good night's sleep so I can get up early in the morning, read the word, and pray, and do it all over again. And that's his decision that he makes. See, in many ways, guys, the, the, I don't know how it is for you. Again, you're not a football fan. You're like, Mike, I, you know, I don't, watch, I don't watch football or whatever. Yeah, my husband doesn't watch football. To adapt that to, to whatever it is that's going on in your life. But that resonates with me, right? That does. And in many ways, this is the Christian life. This is where we live. You know, we can't just keep it in the philosophical and the theological realm. We've got to get practical. What does it look like? I think that's a pretty good demonstration there. So I just don't want us to complicate things. This is a hard word. Make no mistake about it. But in many ways, it's, it's, it's clear at least, right? It's clear. Let's live for Jesus, deny self, take up our cross, and follow him as genuine followers. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God. Lord, you, you care deeply about us as evidenced by sending your son Jesus to bear our sins on that cross. We know this, Lord. We know this, and we thank you for his great sacrifice. And even as believers, as we've come into uh, this relationship with you through Christ, you care deeply about how we live in small things. You're into the details, Lord. You're a God of detail. And... Uh, so, you know, making decisions about pizza and football and things like that, that matters, Lord. And we know that matters to you. And uh, so, you know, we need to be concerned ourselves with both the, the big things and the little things. And we're going to fall short, Lord. We, I hope, you know, the message has been clear that we all understand what's being called of us here and that we would strive for that. Not to earn anything with you. We know we can't contribute to the finished work of Christ. But when we fall short in our efforts, we know that there's, there's grace and mercy that washes over us. And that you, the kindness and your grace that you demonstrate to, to us when we first came to you 
uh, lost in our sins and come to Jesus initially through repentance and faith, that, that same grace is available to us today. Whether we've been walking with you for five years, 10 years, 20 years, or 50 years, Lord, help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. We ask this in the powerful, mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.